Hello, friends, and welcome to episode one of Seminary for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters, and I have with me today Ashley M. Wilcox, who is the author of the forthcoming uh, Women's Lectionary, and she also teaches preaching at Candler School of Theology. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy you could be here with us today. Um, so I knew uh, when I first follow you on Twitter that you were a Quaker, uh, but I didn't know that you had like such an interesting uh, spiritual spiritual journey. Um, and uh, that came to light when I read the blog that you gave me, um, which gives an overview. And it looks like you started out as a uh, cradle Episcopalian, uh, but then you went to like a uh, non-denominational Pentecostal setting. And then from there, um, you didn't, you kind of abstained from the religious life. Um, and then while you were still questioning, you were uh, living in Chile in Santiago and uh, you were going to, but you were going to mass at the same time that you were questioning whether you believed in God or was it you believed in God or that God existed? Yeah, so I was going to Mass, and I had just walked away from the church entirely, and um, I didn't have a strong sense of whether or not God existed. I just knew that I didn't want to be in the kind of church that I was raised in. Gotcha. Um, I feel like that's... um... I feel like that's a similar story for uh, a lot of us who are in kind of like the millennial, um, kind of like really late Gen X uh, generation, it seems, with the um, ex-evangelical crowd and even people who are like adjacent to the ex-evangelical who uh, just don't want to use that label. Um, so yeah. why why did you go to Mass then? What 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 drew you to Mass I think I liked the structure of it. I liked having something to do on Sunday mornings. And actually what I would do is I would go to mass and it was right by this large hill that's in the center of Santiago, close to where I was living. And there's a very tall statue of Mary at the top. And so I would leave mass and then walk up this hill, which was, I think, maybe two miles up and hang out with the statue of Mary at the top and just sit and think and then walk back down. And so that was my Sunday routine. So it seems like uh, you really, so the structure kind of, would you say the structure kind of um, helped, uh, helped and helped you end up where you are today, having that kind of like structure? Maybe. I think every time I've tried to leave church, I've found my way back one way or another. And Mm -hmm. um, I think the structure of it, another thing about going to mass there was that it was in Spanish. And anything that gets me to think about God and faith uh, in a different language, and that was literally in a different language, is helpful for me. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, So you basically went from... Uh, 
highly structured religious services, like with mass. And then when you came back to the States, um, you were trying Episcopal churches. Is that right? Yes, I almost ended up at an Episcopal church. Okay. So you went like from a super structure type of religious service, and then um, you tried out a Quaker type of service. I think I'm saying this right. Um, <laughs> from <laughs> uh, the Freedom Friends Church. Did, did I get that right? That's correct. So okay. I ended up with this small Quaker church called Freedom Friends Church. And um, in your blog, you used the word semi-programmed, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so could you explain, like, because I I hardly know anything about Quaker services. I, I maybe know one person who used to be, like, a really conservative Quaker, and then another friend who thought about becoming Quaker but other than that like I have no experience whatsoever so I was wondering if you could maybe explain uh, like what the difference between Freedom Friends Church and then maybe because I think whenever I think of Quaker I think of like a completely unprogrammed service where people you know just uh, sit and um kind of wait for that moment of inspiration. Um, sure. So can you kind of explain like the different uh, Quaker, I guess, traditions? Yeah. So uh, you're right. Traditionally, friends uh, sit in worship in silence facing each other. And the expectation is that God may lead anyone to speak out of that silence. And so unprogrammed worship typically is about an hour and Quakers sit in that silence. And there's kind of a spectrum of how Quakers worship. On the other end of the spectrum are programmed friends. And these are friends who are have pastors and have music and prayer and a sermon, and their worship looks a lot like another Protestant church. There usually is some silence, some listening, some expectation that God can speak through anyone there, but there's a lot more structure to it. And the church that I found Freedom Friends Church is semi-programmed, and so it has some singing at the beginning, some prayer, and then about 40 minutes of open worship or silence where people could speak out of that. So it's in the middle of the two types of worship. And do you have experience um, with all ends of the spectrum when it comes yes. to Quaker services? Yeah, I've worshipped with just about every kind of friend at this point, <laughs> including in Kenya uh, and with friends who speak Spanish, like all over the world. Oh, that's awesome. So then I'm wondering, um, what oh, what is the one thread that ties all of all of those Quaker traditions together? Like, what? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, what is at the heart of the Quaker tradition? If you could if you could talk about it that way, like what is, how? Yeah. So our founder, George Fox said that there is one, even Christ Jesus who could speak to my condition. And for me, the heart of Quakerism is this idea of direct contact with God, that God can speak to us directly and that God will lead us directly in speaking and in our daily lives. I, that to me that sounds kind of 
low-key um, Pentecostal. Is that all yeah, way off think, base? Okay. No. So I actually see a lot of similarities between the kind of charismatic, non-denominational worship that I grew up in and Quaker worship. And the difference, I think, is in the focus and the content, but not necessarily the belief in God. I think we all believe that we can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I, I like that. I, I'm, I'm part of the um, Episcopal Church now after spending uh, most of my growing up years in the Evangelical Church. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. I gravitated towards an Episcopal Church is because um, they had a structure and they were honest about having a structure Whereas the evangelical church uh, wouldn't say that they had like, you know, a written liturgy or that they followed like the same prayer book every week, but they did have kind of a structure, that same structure that they follow uh, every week. And so um, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable in settings where there is no structure like whatsoever and I kind of have to listen to my own thoughts um, and whatnot so um, it's kind of like meditation I think would you describe it like that it's similar Um, I think for me the difference and there are lots of kinds of meditation I can't really speak to that but the difference is rather than trying to empty your mind you're listening actively listening with the expectation that you might hear something yeah um and yeah that's I find that really attractive but and I've grappled with this probably for most of my adult life is that how do you know when God is speaking to you because I have like I I have this internal monologue going and I hear maybe like voices of other people and so how do I know when God is speaking to me, um, how, how, how do you know when God is speaking to you, Ashley? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. (laughs) And it's honestly, sometimes we say that we only have maybe a handful of sermons that we give. If we're lucky, there might only be one or two. And one of mine is how God speaks to us, uh, because this is a topic that fascinates me. Because we have all these stories in the Bible of, you know, people hearing the voice of God and that just being accepted, or people praying and getting, you know, these answers in the physical world. And that's not, I think, how most people hear from God now, although I think people do hear from God that way. And so I think for me, listening for God often is about practicing, you know, paying attention and paying attention to my life and what's going on in my body, paying attention to the people who know me well and can reflect back what seems good and healthy and of God and what doesn't and paying attention to where I feel happy and excited and led rather than a feeling of obligation or of um, dread. <laughs> that I think everyone could, would do well to like tap into those kind of things, honestly. 
um, I think we should all be able to take some time and uh, slow down and um, incorporate a little more mindfulness in our lives. Um, So when I, I think of Quaker, well, before... Before I read your blog, when I was thinking of Quaker, like I wouldn't have associated uh, Quakerism at all with a lectionary, right? Because <laughs> uh, most traditions that use lectionaries are um, really super structured, like we were talking about earlier. Um, and so, how, like, how did you get the idea for the lectionary? Yeah, it's kind of wild. Like, I am the most unlikely person to write a lectionary. (laughs) Uh, Because, I mean, traditionally, Quakers don't even note holidays. Like, we don't have a liturgical calendar at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is, when you're doing weekly preaching, like I was when I started this project, you have to get your text from somewhere. And a lot of Quakers who do weekly preaching end up falling back on the Revised Common Lectionary, which is the lectionary that, you know, most mainline churches use at this point. And so I was using that and I would use it kind of lightly. Uh, I'd look ahead and see what the texts were and see if one of them was calling to me. And especially if there was a text about women, then I was really interested in that. And if there wasn't, then I would go to something else and, you know, make a sermon series or something different. And I was feeling this uh, tension between wanting to use the Revised Common Lectionary because it is so useful. It's really useful to have a lectionary that will tell you what text to preach on. And there's so many resources on it. There are commentaries online and in books. And I know a lot of other pastors. And so I was part of this community of people preaching on the Revised Common Lectionary. And I was a pastor of this church called Church of Mary Magdalene that was really focused on women's voices and hearing from women and queer people and uh, hearing about feminine images of God. And so I would feel pulled toward that. And so I was telling my partner about this, this kind of tension that I was feeling. And he said, well, why don't you just write your own lectionary? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought this was an amazing idea. And so I spent the next few days uh, seeing if I could do it, seeing if I could put together a year calendar of texts on women in the Bible and feminine images of God. And I found that I could. I didn't even include all of them. Like There are a few that I left out. But you can have texts from the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament uh, for every Sunday and holiday for an entire year on women in the Bible. That's amazing. Um, and I want to uh, stop here uh, for a second and explain to those who know who don't know. Ashley kind of explained it already. Uh, but uh, for those of you who aren't in a liturgical tradition um, uh, and you probably don't use a lectionary, a lectionary is basically a calendar of um, scripture texts that the church uh, will use uh, week by week. So they have, um, say, for the season of Advent, um, there will be like four scriptures every week that the the church will 
uh, read together and um, the, the preacher will select a text or maybe um, intertwine all of them and uh, preach from them on that same week. Um, do you have anything to add about lectionaries in general? I think you pretty much covered it. Uh, I think when most people think about the lectionary, they think of the revised common lectionary, which is right. what you're describing. My lectionary only has two passages or two readings instead of four. And there are a number of other lectionaries that people follow, including the African-American lectionary. There's one called Year D. And the most recent one I'm aware of is the narrative lectionary, which goes through the Bible narratively. I'm going to have to check some of those out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because... I'm constantly stuck in the revised common lectionary. Uh, so um, that's so your lectionary has two scriptures per week, but you also uh, wrote commentary for each passage, right? I did. Like, and, wow, that's like that is an amazing feat. Um, uh, yeah, it was a lot long, of work. So I wrote 130 commentaries total. There wow. are about 700 words each. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, how long did it, did that take you? Uh, from beginning to end, it was about two years. Okay. But um, I wrote the bulk of it in the last eight months of that or so. Uh, so for a while last year, actually for several months last year, I was writing four commentaries a week. Wow. That reminds me like uh, of my seminary days when we would be required to like read, like read through the New Testament for like a New Testament survey and then like write, like summarize and then write a commentary. It's a lot of work. Um, mm-hmm. Which, um, so I know that the, the Revised Common Lectionary uh, tends to use the NRSV, uh, the New Revised uh, Standard Version of the Bible. Is that what you used as well, or did you use other translations? That is my base translation. And so unless otherwise noted in my book, the uh, quotes come from the NRSV. And that's because it's the one that people generally use academically. And um, a lot of the people who would be preaching from this use that. In my own work, I also used the Common English Bible, the CEB. The yes, Jew- <laughs> you're aware. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. Um, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which I find very useful, and uh, the Inclusive Bible, which was useful for this kind of work. I sometimes use the NIV. That's the translation that I grew up with, and so it's the one that I'm most familiar with. And because, you know, I grew up evangelical, I had to memorize large portions of the NIV. So in a way, it was always uh, parallel to the other translation work that I was doing. I, yeah, I appreciate that you use a variety of translations, especially since like um, not, and I would say not, many I was about to say not many but I don't think I can't think of any uh, main translations like the NRSV or the NASB or like the New King James or the ESV that um, uh, make women more visible if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I think I think it's really great that you sought to use translations that would aid you in that, um, especially since uh, you wrote something called the Women's Lectionary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, would you? How would you describe your lectionary? Uh, would you describe it as like a feminist uh, lectionary, or how how would you describe it? I think it absolutely is feminist, and I try not to use a whole lot of feminist jargon in it. I feel like a lot of our discourse right now in feminist spaces is repeating the same kinds of things over and over, and so it's feminist in that it is presenting the stories of women side by side and having all of these different ways of being a woman in the world and the ways that God interacts with women and uses women and the ways women interact with each other, both good and bad. Yeah, um, and that's really important, right? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Elizabeth Johnson, who wrote She Who Is, but she talks about how it's uh, really important that uh, women see themselves in the image of God, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because otherwise, you know, it's hard for them to to see themselves as fully human. Yeah. Yeah, I actually got to hear her speak last year. She was amazing. Oh, what did she speak on? She was, so she's doing a lot on animals right now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, eco-justice. And so the topic of her talk was whether God's grace was sufficient for bears, I think. And she's talking about how animals have direct relationships with God just like we do. Okay, I'm going to take a note of that and then try not to go on too much of a tangent here. Uh, (laughs) I I made a mental note of that. Um, Yeah, the video is available online if you want to look it up. Okay, cool. Um, So you used multiple translations for uh, the selectionary, um, but you also wrote commentaries, um, uh, which uh, scholars um, and and or works uh, influenced your commentary the most. And uh, I'm wondering also which kind of interpretive methods you used. Yeah, I want to start with the interpretive methods because for me that comes first. Yes. And this is one of the things that we talk about in the preaching class where I'm a TA is having a weekly rhythm of working with the text. And I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm a preacher, and so that is my approach. It's, you know, preparing for a preaching moment. And I spend two days just with the text before I turn to commentaries. On the first day, I will write out the text in three different translations longhand, so I'm really paying attention to what it says and what the different translations are saying, and I'll read it aloud so that I hear it, and then I will spend some time just letting that marinate. I you know, go for a walk, I think about it, and just paying attention to the text in that way. And then on the second day, I will take the text and put it on half a page of paper. Um, so like on the left side of a piece of paper, and then on the right side, I write all of my comments and questions and things that stand out to me on that text. 
And this is one of the most useful things I do. Often my sermons or commentaries will come out of that written engagement with the text because the places I have questions are the places that uh, are interesting to me or something that I need to yeah. look into more. Um, and so then on the third day is when I go to commentaries and I used a lot of commentaries for this book. Um, the kind of gold standard as I see it at this point is the new interpreters Bible commentary. And that's a 10 volume set. The most recent version is 10 volumes. It came out in 2015 and there's a one volume version of that as well. And they just do a very good job for an overview of the entire Bible. Another one that was critical for this work was the women's Bible commentary, which was edited by Carol Newsom and others. And uh, Carol Newsom was one of my professors at Candler. She's an excellent biblical scholar and really the number one person in the world on the book of Job. Uh, and then another one that was really good for me in this was Carol Myers has a book called Women in Scripture, which is kind of an encyclopedia of all of the women who appear in the Bible, both named and unnamed, and then the ones that are more metaphorical and also feminine images of God. And so those ones I looked at every time. And then I had a number of other commentaries that I pulled in for different parts. Uh, online resources that I found very helpful were um, blueletterbible.org for working with translation and um, workingpreacher.org has a lot of good commentaries. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that kind of overview of uh, your process and um, I'm taking mental note of some of the like the the women's Bible commentary um, because uh, it's I don't know how it is um, in other seminaries um, but the seminary that I went to uh, didn't really emphasize a lot of um, commentaries from like a women's perspective mm -hmm. um, they just uh, skewed towards more of a scholarly perspective um, and didn't really pay attention to um, uh, the, the women. Uh, and most of the scholars were men. I would probably say maybe 90% of the scholars were men. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciate that. Um, so Yeah, well, and if I can just interrupt for a sec. Sure, uh, yeah. Women's Bible commentary is great because it is very scholarly. They got the top people in the field to write that. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that oh, this is a, a very dated example, I think, but um, some people are still surprised to find out that women do go to seminary. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> uh, I remember telling someone that I was going to go to seminary and they're like, well, why are you going? Like, you can't be a pastor or anything because you're just a woman. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but I, I do like to study. So that's why I'm going, you know, women can be scholars too. <laughs> pastors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and pastors. Um, so what uh, I know I'm keeping an eye on the time 
here um and i have a lot of more questions to ask you but due to to a time factor um i want to ask uh this last question here oh what do you hope that uh people get from using the women's lectionary my hope is that the people who are looking for a resource like this will find it i talked to a lot of pastors who are women who are, you know, maybe in their first call or maybe a little further along, and they really want to preach on women in the Bible. They want to delve into feminine images of God. And so I'm hoping that this will be the kind of resource that they're looking for. I basically wrote the book that I wanted to exist. And I hope that for people who use it, maybe if they're not even if they're not preaching the entire lectionary, just seeing these stories side by side will broaden their understanding of how women are portrayed in the Bible, because we tend to get the same stories over and over again. And That's if true. you really look at the breadth of women's experiences throughout you know, the entire Bible, it paints a very different picture of who these people are, who God's people are, who God is, you know, how God is at work and kind of the arc of our faith. Yeah, that's super, super important. I am really excited for this to come out. Uh, when is when is the book going to be released? It's coming out in October. October. Yay. October yeah. is also my birthday month. So happy birthday to me. Mine too. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> happy birthday to you. <laughs> yeah, this would be a great birthday present. <laughs> um, so if people want to stay updated um, on the women's lectionary, because I know you're in the process of uh, doing edits right now, right? I am. I'm almost okay. done. Uh, they're about to go off to the copy editor. So we're in this process. Awesome. So yeah. if people want to stay updated on that, where can they go? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Ashley M. Wilcox. And my website is ashleymwilcox.com. And there's a place there to sign up for my email list. I haven't sent out any emails yet, and I'm not planning on sending a ton, but that'll be the place where I make announcements and offer some you know, free content. And then I have a Facebook author page too, and that is at author Ashley M. Wilcox. Sweet. Um, and I will put, the, I will put that uh, in the show notes as well. Um, for people to find links and stuff. Um, thank you so much, Ashley, for talking to me. Uh, I learned a lot. And again, I'm really excited for the Women's Lectionary to come out. Um, for those of you who aren't in the loop, uh, you can go to seminary.show and sign up to get updates on seminary for the rest of us. Uh, thanks for joining in and thanks again, Ashley. Thank you.